Hey guys, and welcome to episode 5 of the Mysterious Benedict Society Read Aloud podcast. In the last episode, we met Mr. Benedict, the maker of these strange, odd tests. And he has an illness called narcolepsy, where when he gets strong emotion, he falls asleep unexpectedly. Um, we met Rhonda, who was actually an assistant, but we kind of already knew her before. And number two, which is the pencil woman, but we don't know her real name. We have Rennie, Sticky, Kate, and Constance, who are talking to Mr. Benedict. They still don't really know what this whole thing is about, and he's asking for a team of children to go on a very dangerous mission. We don't know exactly what that mission is yet, but we're going to have to see. So let's go to chapter 5. Chapter 5. The Sender and the Messages In the end, every child agreed to join the team, though the decision was more difficult for some than others. Kate took out a stick of gum and said, I'm in, without even pausing to consider. Rennie, less fearless than Kate, had to give the matter some thought. If he didn't join the team, what would he do? Return to the orphanage? Seeing Miss Permal again would be nice, but he would be in the same pickle as before. Out of place among the other children, purposeless, purposelessness, and lonely. Moreover, if Mr. Benedict was to be trusted, and for some reason Rennie did trust him, then feeling purposelessness and loneliness were the least of his problems. Something terrible was happening, and Mr. Benedict needed them to stop it. A strained sense of duty, not to mention a powerful curiosity, compelled him to join. Constance was more skeptical. It was beginning clear that her natural approach to things. So if I stick around and you tell me this big secret, what's to stop me from going out and telling everyone? Nothing will stop you, said Mr. Benedict. You're free to leave at any time. However, if I hadn't determined I could trust you, you would never have been invited to this room. And for that matter, even if you were to tell, no one would believe you, for you are only a child. Is that not why you came to take these tests in the first place? Constance's face screwed up as if she might burst into tears, or more likely throw screaming fit. I don't mean to attack you, child, Mr. Benedict said gently. Let us strike a bargain. If you join the team, this shall be our understanding. You will follow my instructions, but only because you have agreed to do so, not because I told you to. No one is making you do anything. Is it all on your? It is all of your own will. Fine, said Constance at last. Now where do we sleep? I know you're tired, but first we must wait for Sticky to make up his mind. Sticky had been shrinking in his chair. He had drawn his feet up beneath him, crossed his arms over his knees, and buried his face in them. At Mr. Benedict's words, he looked up with an expression of something like panic, then quickly hid his face again. His voice muffled, his words mumbled. Sticky said, May I make this decision tomorrow? I'm afraid not, my friend. There is no time to waste. I hate to press you, but you must decide tonight. Do you think the team is good enough without me? came a muffled voice. Frankly, no. I think the team needs you to succeed. Then how can I say no? Mr. Benedict spoke gently. Sticky, it's quite reasonable for you to be afraid. It's a terrible thing for a child to be asked to join a dangerous mission. But you have every reason to say no, and I will not blame you in the least. Come on, Sticky, said Kate. It'll be fun. Sticky peeked out from behind his knees, first at Kate, who gave him a smile and a wink, then at Rennie, who said, I'm with Mr. Benedict. I don't blame you if you don't join us, but I'd feel a whole lot better if you did. You would? Rennie nodded. Sticky hid his face again. 
For a long time, the room was silent, full of expectation. Although Constance yawned and scratched at an insect bite on her ankle, no one else moved or spoke a word. There was only the hushed sound of their breathing, and from somewhere in the room, the ticking of a clock, which must have been hidden by books. Finally, Sticky looked up. I'll do it. Now may I please use the bathroom? Much as the children longed for more answers, it had grown late. Their eyes were heavy. Mr. Benedict deemed they should rest tonight and leave further explanations for morning. In short order, they were given toothbrushes, pajamas, and warm slippers. It was drafting the old house at night and shown to their rooms. The bedroom Rennie shared with Sticky was small but comfortable, with a worn rug on the wooden floor, bunk beds against the wall, and, of course, more bookshelves. When Rennie returned from the brushing his teeth, he found Sticky already asleep on the lower bunk, the lamp still lit, spectacles still on his nose, and slippers still on his feet. On his chest, rising and falling with the deep, regular breaths of a solid sleeper, lay a thick book about tropical plant life that he'd taken from the shelf. It was open to the very middle, in only a few minutes, Sticky had read half the book. Rennie marveled at this. He was a fast reader himself, faster than most adults. But compared to Sticky, he must have seemed positively sluggish. Such an incredible gift, and yet here the boy lay, a runaway sleeping in a stranger's house. What did he run from? Standing there in the lamplit room, reflecting upon Sticky's life as he slept, Rennie experienced a curious mixture of admiration, affection, and sympathy. Curious because he, although he'd known the boy for only a day, it seemed as if they'd been friends for ages. And Kate, too, he reflected. He was already quite fond of her. And Constance, well, with Constance, he would have to wait and see. Anyway, Rennie thought, if nothing, comes out, if nothing else comes of this, at least you're making friends. That's more than you had yesterday. He eased sticky slippers from his feet and his glasses from his nose setting them along with the plant book upon the bedside stand. Then he drew a cover over his friend, tucked, turned off the light, and crept from the room. Down the dark, quiet hall, the girls must have been asleep too, and down a flight of creaky stairs, Rennie made his way back to Mr. Benedict's study. He knocked softly on the door, and from within, a voice called, Please come in, Rennie. Rennie entered to find Mr. Benedict alone in the room, seated on the floor with his back against the desk surrounded by books, papers, and a variety of colored pens. He gestured toward a chair and said, Have a seat, will you, while I clear some of this away? He began sorting through things in piles. Awkward business working on the floor, but that is why I come promise with Rhonda number two. They've grown overprotective, I'm afraid, and can hardly stand to leave me alone for a minute. Thus, I promise them to remain seated as much as possible, and on the floor, when possible, and in turn they allow me some occasional privacy. Mr. Benedict finished tidying his things and sat in a chair across from Rennie. I've been expecting you. I imagine you wish to call Miss Permore and apprise her of your situation. Rennie nodded. You're very good to think of it. Number two told me how you resisted her attempts to befuddle you on the same matter earlier today. I assume you realized her deceptions were another aspect of the testing. Again, Rennie nodded. He hadn't known it at the time, but looking back on the encounter later, he had suspected it as much. You behave admirably, Mr. Benedict said, polite but steadfast, and with appropriate consideration. Now I'm afraid you can't make your telephone the call this time either, but it has nothing to do with being tested. As it happens, Miss Permel phoned you while you were being shown to your room. Her mother, it seems, had had an unfortunate reaction to her new medicine, 
and Miss Permel found it necessary to take her to the hospital. She begs you not to worry, it's only a mild reaction, and the doctors assure her that her mother will be surprised Robin come morning. But she wanted you to know how proud of you she is. Proud, but not surprised, she said, and sends you her best regards. And now, he continued, removing his spectacles and looking frankly at Rennie with his bright green eyes, they were made greener still by his green plaid suit. I will anticipate your other questions. First, I've made all the necessary arrangements with Mr. Rucker at the orphanage. We have considerable skills and resources here and can do many things you might not expect. And second, on a more solemn note, no, you won't be able to contact Miss Permal again. I'm afraid the urgency of our mission and it is necessary secrecy forbids it. It is for Miss Permal's protection as well as your own. But if all goes well, which is, of course, our most desperate hope, you will see her again. Indeed, if our mission is to succeed, it must do so very quickly. And so, with your luck, your reunion will be sooner rather than later. Rennie nodded again, though not quite as bravely as before, and glanced away to hide the tears in his eyes. He had thought this might be the case, but it still saddened him to think he might not ever share a cup of tea with Miss Permal, or attempt to tell her, in his limited Tamil, about his adventures. He was sad at the thought of what lay ahead, yes, and a little more than afraid. I am sorry, Rennie, said Mr. Benedict with a quaver in his voice. Rennie didn't look at him just yet. He kept his eyes averted until he had composed himself, which he did with a few deep breaths and a quick sight at his tearful eyes. When he felt sufficiently recovered, he turned back to Mr. Benedict, who was sound asleep in his chair. Before Rennie could rise and tiptoe from the room, however, Mr. Benedict's eyes popped open and he laid a hand on Rennie's arm to stop him. Forgive me, he said, clearing his throat and running his fingers through his unkept hair. Please stay just a moment longer. I wanted to ask you something. I wasn't asleep long, was I? I trust I haven't kept you up? No, sir, only a minute or two. Ah, good. Usually it is only a minute or two, but occasionally it's longer. Now then, for my question. Yes, sir? It regards the chess problem from the first test. You, Rennie, happen to be the only child ever to answer that question correctly, and I should like to hear your explanation for it. The board clearly shows that the only black pawn is out of its starting position, while the other pieces and pawns rest on their original squares. Yet, according to the rules of chess, the white player always moves first. Why, then, did you say this position was possible? Because the white knight may have changed his mind. The white knight? Oh, yes, sir. The pawns can only move forward, never backward. So none of the white pawns could have moved yet. And the bigger pieces are trapped behind the pawns, because only knights can jump over things. So they couldn't have moved yet either. But a white knight might have opened the game by jumping out in front. Then, after the black pawn was moved, the knight returned to its original square. So it looks like the white player never moved at all. Bravo, Rennie, you're quite correct. Now tell me, would you consider this a good move? I'm no great chess player, but I would say not. By starting over, white loses the advantage of going first. Why then do you think the white player may have done it? Rennie considered. He imagined himself moving out his knight only to bring it right there back where it had started. Why would he ever do such a thing? At last he said, perhaps because he doubted himself. Indeed, said Mr. Benedict. Perhaps he did. Thank you, Rennie. You've been very kind and very patient, and I'm sure you're ready for a good night's sleep. I'll see you at breakfast bright and early. Rennie rose and went to the door, but there he hesitated. He looked back. 
Mr. Benedict had replaced his spectacles and lowered himself onto the floor again, was leaning against the desk and had taken up a book. His eyebrows rose expectantly when he noticed the boy lingering. Yes, Rennie. Mr. Benedict, sir, have you read all the books in this house? Mr. Benedict smiled, glancing fondly at the many books in his study before looking at Rennie again. My dear boy, he said, what do you think? Bright and early, Mr. Benedict had said, and indeed it was early, but it was far from bright. As the children rose and went down to the dining room, not knowing where else to meet, rain was slashing against the windows, wind groaned in the chimneys, and the odd drafts sent papers flying from desktops and skittering across the floor. The blackened sky outside seemed to creep gloomily into the house, dimming the lamps and lengthening their shadows. And along with the howling chimneys were heard a growling thunder, low and menacing and close at hand, as if a tiger prowled in the dark rooms beyond their walls. From time to time, the lamps flickered with thunder, and once, just as the children were taking seats at the table, they went out entirely. The room was dark only for a few moments, yet when the lamps came back to life, Milligan stood before the children with a pitcher of juice, having appeared out of nowhere. Constance shrieked. The other children jumped. Milligan sighed. Filling their juice glasses, he said, Rhonda's coming with toast and eggs. Number two's stopping a week in her bedroom wall, but she'll fetch Mr. Benedict when she's done. Milligan, may I have some milk, please? Kate asked cheerily. She'd been awake longer than anyone, had already bathed and dressed in fresh clothes Rhonda had given her, and apparently unaffected by the storm, was in much better mood than the others. Without doubt, she was in a better new mood than Without doubt, she was in a better mood than Milligan, who nodded grumpily and said, Anything else? <coughs> you wouldn't have any tea, would you, Milligan? asked Rennie. And perhaps a little honey? And candy? asked Constance. No candy for breakfast, Milligan said, leaving the room. Rhonda appeared with a tray of wheat toast, eggs, and fruit. Good morning, everyone, she said. Quite a bit of weather we're having, isn't it? On a day like this... You have to set something on a very stray sheet of paper if you don't want a draft carrying it off. A map of Stonetown Harvard passed me in the hall just now, and on the stairs I found a grocery list I misplaced two weeks ago. Leaks in the walls and drafts in every room, Constance grumbled. You should have these things fixed. Leaks and drafts aren't priorities, I'm afraid, Rhonda said. Our project, which is now your project too, has required every spare moment and all our resources have gone toward the research, the investigation, and the tests. Constance, will you pass the juice pitcher, please? No, the girl replied, car- crossing her arms. Perhaps you'll be less cranker- cranky after you've eaten, Rhonda said, getting the pitcher herself. At this, Constance's pudgy, rosy cheeks grew reddish still, so that her wispy blonde hair seemed as bright as stars, and almost white in contrast as her blue eyes shone. Rhonda noticed this and said, Constance, I have no idea how lovely your eyes were until just now. They're spectacular. This compliment somehow upsetting to Constance kept her quiet for some time. Milligan returned with the milk, a pot of tea, and a jar of honey. Mumbling something to Rhonda about being on duty, he left without a word. What does he mean by that, Sneaky said, on duty? Milligan is our, well, for lack of a better word, our bodyguard. He had other tasks, but his first duty is to make sure we're safe. Of course, until now, we haven't been in direct danger. But now that you're here, I'm sorry, I don't mean to alarm you. The other, the important thing is he's here to protect you. 
Protect us from what? Rennie asked. I'll let Mr. Benedict explain all that to you when he calms down. The main rule is this. You must never leave the house without Milligan's company. Inside the house, you're quite safe. We have defenses here. The maze, for example, wasn't just a test. It's the only entrance. And this reminds me. All the arrows in the maze point to the stairway, which isn't helpful if you're trying to leave the house. That's another reason you should never you should never go without Milligan. We have a special way of opening the front door. You'll remember it has no inside door knob, and Milligan knows the maids like the back of his hand. I've always thought was a, that was a funny expression, Kate said, because how well do people really know the backs of their hands? Honestly, can anyone here tell me exactly what the back of your hand looks like? They were all contemplating the backs of their hands when Mr. Benedict came in, followed very closely and attentively by number two, who no longer wore her yellow suit, but had changed into a comfortable pair of yellow coveralls, so that she still looked every bit like a pencil. She stepped close to Mr. Benedict until he had greeted everyone and taken his chair, after which she swooped upon the platter of toast and eggs, accidentally jostling Rhonda in the process. Pardon me, she said embarrassed. Not at all, said Rhonda to the children. To the children, she said. Number two is always hungry because she never sleeps. A person needs a great deal of energy to stay awake all the time, and thus a great deal of food. It also makes me somewhat nervous and irritable, I'm afraid, said number two. She proceeded to eat the crusts off her toast by turning it round and round and round to, and taking tiny rapid bites. You never sleep, Kate asked, after watching this curious procedure a moment. Number two swallowed. Oh, yes, I do, but only a little. Don't we make a fine pair, said Mr. Benedict, pouring himself a cup of tea. I can't stay awake and number two can't go to sleep. He started to laugh, then cut himself short, apparently not wanting to risk it. By the way, Rhonda, have you seen my map of the harbor? It appears to have escaped the study. It drifted by me in the hallway, Rhonda said. I placed it by the bell under the Swiss book on electron position accelerators. Thank you. Now, children, speaking of the bell, do you all remember where it is? On the second floor landing? If you ever hear that bell ringing, I want you to gather on the landing immediately. It will only be rung in case of an emergency, so don't delay. Drop what you're doing and go there at once. Understood? The children nodded uneasily. All this talk of danger and emergencies without explanation was beginning to wear on them. I'm sorry to put you ill at ease, Mr. Benedict said, and I haven't much to say to comfort you. I can finally offer some answers to your questions, however. Who wishes to begin? Yes, Constance? To the great exasperation of the others, Constance demanded to know why they couldn't have a candy for breakfast. Mr. Benedict smiled. A fine question. The short answer is that there is no candy presently in the house. Beyond that, the explanation involves a consideration of candy's excellent flavor but low nutritional value. That is to say, white makes a wonderful treat but a poor meal. Though I suspect you aren't interested in explanations, but simply wish to express your frustration. Is that too correct? Maybe, Constance said with a shrug, but she seemed satisfied. Other questions? said Mr. Benedict. There were, of course, other questions, and all speaking at once, the children asked him to explain his project and why he needed children and what sort of danger they were all in. Mr. Benedict set down his teacup. Very well, I shall explain everything, and you may listen as you eat your breakfast. When he began, however, Constance was the only child who continued to eat. The others were unable to concentrate on anything besides his explanation. Several years ago, Mr. Benedict said, in the course of my research on the human brain, it came to my attention that messages were being delivered to people all across the world. 
delivered, I should say, quite without their knowing it, quite without their knowledge. It is as if I secretly hid a letter in your pocket, and later you found and read it, not knowing where it came from. In this case, however, the messages were going directly into people's minds, which absorbed them not only knowing where the messages came from, but without realizing they had received or read anything at all. The messages appear to be in some kind of code, Mr. Bennett continued. They come across like poetic gibberish, but from early on I've had reason to believe they're having a powerful effect, a most unfortunate effect, on those who receive them, which is to say almost everyone. In fact, I believe these messages are the source of the phenomenon commonly known as the emergency, though I admit I don't know to what end, and so I've devoted myself to discovering their ultimate purpose and who it is that sends them. Unfortunately, I've not entirely succeeded. But you've learned a great deal, protested number two. Certainly I have. I know, for instance, how the messages are being delivered. And where they're sent from, Rhonda said impatiently. And what the sender is capable of doing, cried number two. Obviously, Rhonda and number two were worried the children might misjudge Mr. Benedict. Sensing this, he gave an appreciative smile. Yes, my friends, it's true. We do know some things. For instance, we know the sender uses children to deliver the hidden messages. Children, Sticky said. Why children? And what exactly do the messages say, Rennie asked. Well, you're quite finished with your breakfast. I'll show you. In the meantime, let me tell you. Please, can't breakfast wait, Ken interrupted. Let us see right now. Well, if you all feel this way, said Mr. Benedict, not noting their looks of impatience. This time, not even Constance resisted, perhaps because she was already full. And so the children were to be taken straight up way to the third floor, down a long, narrow hallway, and at last into a room packed with equipment. It was a terrific mess. On a table against the wall sat a television, a radio, a, and a computer, and upon every other available surface were scattered countless tools, wires, books, and charts, and notebooks, disconnected antennas, disassembled gadgets, and various other unrecognizable oddments. There was hardly anywhere to step as Mr. Benedict closely attended by Rhonda and number two, led them over to the television. Listen carefully, Mr. Benedict said, turning on the television. Instantly, Rennie felt his skin crawl. It was a familiar feeling, he realized, but he had never paid much attention before. Meanwhile, a news program had appeared on the screen. A red-haired reporter with shiny gold earrings stood outside the White House, where a crowd of people were gathered, as usual, to wave signs and demand something be done about the emergency. They're calling for a change, said the reporter, her features gathered an expression of thoughtful seriousness. And their cries are not falling on deaf ears. The president has repeated his agreement something must be done. And soon, meanwhile in the halls of Congress, Constance gave a loud yawn. I don't hear anything unusual. The other children looked at Mr. Benedict. It was rude of Constance to say it that way, but she was right. Mr. Benedict nodded. Now pay attention, please. Number two, engage the receiver. Number two sat at the computer and with the quick, agile fingers, typed a string of commands. The television screen flickered. Its picture grew disoriented. The children could still make out the wavery image of the news reporter gesturing toward the crowd behind her, but her voice faded away, replaced by that of a child. What in the world, Kate said. Just listen, said number two. The unseen child, it sounded like a girl about Kate's age, spoke in a plodding, whispery monotone, her voice half-drowned in static. At first, only a few random words were clear enough to be understood. 
market, too free to be, obfuscate. Number two, type more commands to the into the computer. The interface lessens considerably, and the child's words came clearly now, slipping through the faint static in a slow drone. The missing aren't missing, they're only departed. All minds keep all thoughts, so like gold closely guarded. Again the words were coming over by static. Number two muttered under her breath. Her fingers flew across the keyboard, and the child's slow, whispery voice returned. Glow, grow the lawn and mow the lawn. Always leave the TV on. Brush your teeth and kill the germs. Poison apples, poison worms. It went on like this. The child's voice never faltered, never ceased, but delivered the curious phrases in eerie, chanting-like progression. The news reporter, meanwhile, had vanished from the disoriented picture, replaced by a cheerful-looking weather forecaster, but it continued to be the child's voice they heard. Mr. Benedict signaled number two, whose fingers flew over the keyboard, and the child's face faded. The child's voice faded. The weather forecaster was promising clear skies afternoon. Mr. Benedict switched off the television. On the blank television screen, the children could suddenly see the reflections. Every one of them was frowning. When they realized this, their faces all adopted looks of surprise, then of a tense curiosity. What does obfuscate mean? asked Constance. Sticky, as if something had pulled a string in his back, promptly answered. To make so confused or a quake as to be difficult to perceive or to otherwise render indistinct. Constance looked frightened. It means to make things muddled, Bernie said. Thank you for the dictionary definition, Sticky, said Mr. Demendick. And thank you, Rennie, for the translation. He crossed his arms and regarded the children. This child's voice is currently being transmitted on every television, radio, and cell phone in the world, which means, of course, it is being absorbed by millions of minds. And yet, although an important part of every mind this child's messages are being heard, understood and taken seriously in another part, the part that is aware of itself, the messages remain undetected. But this receiver, I've intended, is capable of detecting and translating them, much as Rennie translated Sticky's definition a moment ago. But how could people who speak different languages understand that kid? Kate asked. What about people in Spain? The messages transmit in every language. I've tuned the receiver to speak English only because that's what we speak. This is too creepy, Sticky said, glancing nervously behind him. It's like... Like, like having a strange person whisper in your ear while you sleep, Mr. Bendix suggested. Okay, that just made it creepier, Sticky said. Rennie was shaking his head wonderingly. How is this happening, Mr. Benedict? These messages, wherever they are, how are they being set, sent? To put it simply, Mr. Benedict began, they depend for their mobility upon external agents. Mr. Benedict, that's hardly putting it simply, interrupted Rhonda with a significant look at Constance, her face has darkened with frustration. Forgive me, you're quite right. Simply pushed, the messages ride piggyback on signals, television, radio, cell phones, all these things make use out of usable, invisible signals. And the sender has found a way to take advantage. The messages aren't prickly, so they will ride on any kind of signal. The sender has discovered how to control the adhesive property of thoughts. The what? asked the children altogether. The adhesive property of thoughts, that is, the way thoughts are drawn to signals and then stick to them, much like little pieces of metal can be drawn to a magnet. They're attracted to all kinds of signals, even other thoughts. So the messages are just thoughts, Kata said. 
Indeed, Mr. Bannock replied, although I wouldn't say just. Thoughts carry a great deal of fright. But why does the sender use children to send them? Rennie asked. A devilish trick, said Mr. Benedict, and a necessary one. You see, only a child's thoughts can be slipped into the mind of so secretly. For some reason, they go unnoticed. No surprise there, Constance humped. I've never met a grown-up who believed me capable of thought. She's absolutely right, put a number two with a sharp edge in her voice. People pay no attention to what children say, much less to what they think. Rhonda patted number two's shoulder. Number two is a bit testy about this. She was often ignored as a child. That doesn't change the truth, number two snarled. Easy now, said Rhonda, only teasing. Sorry, blood sugar's low, said number two, hastily unwrapping a granola bar. At any rate, said Mr. Benedict continued, I believe the sender uses children as sort of a filter. After passing through the minds of children, the messages become virtually undetectable, where adult thoughts would lumber into the mind like an elephant. Children's creep in on a cat like cat feed, find a shadowy place to hide. Nobody notices them at all, Sticky asked. Oh, some may be vaguely aware of mental activity, Mr. Bendick said, but if so, they attribute the uneasy sensation to something else. They think perhaps they've had an original idea or have drunk too much coffee. I don't recall ever having felt that way, said Constance, like something's happening, but I don't know what. The others shook their head, indicating that they hadn't either. That is because you love the truth, said Mr. Benedict. You see, number two interrupted him. Mr. Benedict, before you go on, won't you take a seat? Makes me nervous you standing there like that. Too many hard things about. Just look at this chair, and the desk, and the television cabinet, and all these tools. Turning this way and that, number two was pointing at almost everything she saw. Fine, fine, number two, we'll all sit, said Mr. Benedict, sitting into a cross-legged position on the floor. He gestured for the others to join him. Shoving aside books and papers and odd places of machinery, the children made room to sit. Number two took a deep breath to calm herself. You see, Mr. Benedict began again. Although most people care about the truth, they can nonetheless, under certain circumstances, and given proper persuasion, be diverted from it. Some, however, possess an unusually powerful love of truth. And you children are among the few. Your minds have been resistant in the hidden messages. Is that why your test asked whether we like television and the radio? Asked Rennie. Benedict, ben, Mr. Benedict tapped his nose. Exactly. Of course it's possible you enjoy watching an occasional TV show or listening to the radio every now and then. But in general, you will find you don't like it. This is because your minds, so unwilling to be deceived, are avoiding exposure to the messages. I don't see what's dangerous about all this, Constance said with a sour expression. So people are receiving some kids' thoughts and don't realize it. That hardly seems reason to panic. We haven't come to the panic part yet, replied Mr. Benedict gravely. Oh, said Constance. Great, said Sticky. Something is approaching, Mr. Benedict said. Something dreadful. These messages are connected to it, but they are only the beginning. What coming is worse, far worse. A looming darkness, like storm clouds sweeping in to cover the sky. What? what? Siggy stammered. What, what is it? Mr. Bennett scratched his rumpled head. I'm afraid I don't know. The turtle blinked. Was he joking? He didn't know? I sense your confusion, said Mr. Benedict. I should have said I don't exactly know. Rhonda spoke up. We have good reason to believe in this coming threat, children. It's just that. But if you have a good reason, Constance interrupted, why are you just sitting around? 
Call the government. Alert the authorities. An excellent point, Constance, said Mr. Benedict, who, it seemed like Rennie, was surprisingly tolerant of the girl's rudeness. In fact, I once trusted a trusted advisor to certain high officials, many of whom presided of the government agencies, but things have changed. Not only have those agencies been dismantled and a number of good men and women gone missing, but the officials formerly attended to my remarks have grown skeptical of them. They have come to look upon me as a friendly cook, and some even regard me with suspicion. Everything I do now, I do in secret. Did you just say good men and women are gone missing? asked Rennie, hoping he had misunderstood. Vanished, said Mr. Benedict grimly. Years ago, when it first came to my attention that some operatives had disappeared, I naturally inquired about them. But my questions to, ma- ma- to no matter whom I put them, and I put them to many people, were met with an astonishing lack of regard. It was perfectly silly, I was told, to be asking such questions. Somehow, it was believed that these missing agents chose to go away, were given plum assignments in sunny climates, perhaps, or else gone into early retirement, although there were no evidence of any such thing. No one seemed to know or care where the agents had gone, but everyone knew, so I was told again and again, everyone knew that the agents hadn't gone missing. No, no, the idea was very preposterous. The children were dumbstruck. Government agents had disappeared and nobody cared? Nobody even believed it? Rennie found his voice first. So that's how you know these strange messages are having an effect on people. Mr. Benedict nodded. Quite right, Rennie. At least it's our one example. Wait a minute, Kate said. How do you know the messages have anything to do with that? Because of that phrase we heard on the receiver, said Rennie. The missing aren't missing. They're only departed. Don't you think there's a connection? Hey, you're right, said Kate, who had already forgotten the phrase. Constance seemed exasperated. Okay, so the authorities are being smookered by these hidden messages. But how could they resist the facts? Show them your receiver, Gizmo, Mr. Benedict. They'll have to believe you. I'm afraid they won't, said Mr. Benedict. The receiver would be considered inefficient evidence. For all they know, the messages might be my own invention, generated by the receiver itself. I am no longer considered a trustworthy source of information. Rennie was puzzled. But Mr. Benedict, if you explained how it worked... Scientifically, I mean. How could they not believe you? Surely you can demonstrate the principles involved. Mr. Benedict hesitated. A reasonable suggestion, Rennie. A very... Now let me see how to put it. I can't exactly... Well... Number two interrupted him. What Mr. Benedict is too embarrassed to say, children, is that even if he did explain it, no one would believe him because no one would understand him. That's the downside to being a genius. Just because... You understand something doesn't mean anyone else will. Mr. Benedict is too modest. He can never bring himself to say it. He's tried to explain to it to it a number of people, Rhonda put in. But not only are they skeptical but to begin with, number two and I, and a few of the other assistants, are the only two people who have understood him. Mr. Benedict's cheeks and forehead have gone pink with embarrassment. He coughed. As usual, my friends, you over-sedate my accomplishment. Nevertheless, the essence of what you say is true. Among the authorities these days, it is difficult to find a sympathetic listener. In other words, compared to you, they're all dummies, Kate said with a laugh. That is perhaps not the most polite way to put it, Kate, said Mr. Benedict. Unlike Kate, the others were in no mood to laugh. Hidden messages being broadcast to the world, 
good men and women gone missing? The authorities beyond convincing? And the children were somehow going to be involved in all this? The prospect had caused a deep, indefinable dread to settle upon them like a cold mist. Rennie's reaction, I mean Constance's reaction, by now a predictable one, was to express irritation. Fine, I get it. A lot of people vanish without a trace, and someone's sending out secret messages, and nobody will believe you about it. But we aren't really in danger, are we? Though her tone was scoffing and irritable, it was evident from her eyes, which darted back and forth, that Constance was growing afraid. You said we were all in danger, but that was just an exaggeration, wasn't it? I am sorry to say it, Constance, Mr. Benedict said somberly, but I did not exaggerate in the least. You are all in danger even as we speak. And indeed, even as they spoke, the bell on the landing began a furious clanging. Okay, guys, so that's the end of chapter five, but I just want to put in a little note. I'm sorry if I was stuttering a lot this time. I've been really tired lately, so that's probably the reason. Thanks for listening. See you next episode.